oftentimes all the work that I've seen and all the groups that I've seen that talk about effective altruism are about kind of trading lives, you know, like um, if I encourage people to eat fish instead of cows, it will reduce suffering, you know, such and, you know, mm -hmm. such and such percent and all that kind of stuff. Um, and it comes to me, it comes across as very elitist, right? Where it's just like trading off lives as if those cows or those fish don't really matter. It's just mm -hmm. a matter of like reducing overall suffering. Hello and welcome to the Science is Gray podcast. Contrary to widespread belief and mainstream media portrayals, science isn't always black and white. I'm your host, Serena Farb, and as a former science teacher with a biochemistry degree and passionate justice activist, I believe that social progress and justice depend on open scientific dialogue and debate, even when it's unpopular or controversial. On this podcast, we have in-depth conversations exploring scientific issues from a holistic perspective that allows room for nuance, understanding bias, ethical dilemmas, and reaching into the gray areas of science and ethics in society. Those clips you just heard were part of my discussion with Dr. Casey Taft, an internationally recognized professor of psychiatry who has published more than 100 articles and scientific reports on abuse, trauma, and violence prevention. Casey is also the co-founder and manager of the company Vegan Publishers and sees his vegan work and animal advocacy as a natural extension of his violence prevention work. Today, I brought Casey onto the podcast to have a discussion about the role of scientific evidence and data in social movements and animal advocacy. In particular, I wanted to discuss the growing support and push for effective altruism by many philanthropists and nonprofits and how psychology research and data is being applied in the vegan movement right now to determine what is or is not effective activism. I so enjoyed this conversation with Casey and hearing his perspective as both a clinical psychologist and a vegan activist. And I know you will too, especially if you are already vegan and want to understand how data can inform your activism and how to personally help other people go vegan too. And really quickly before we get started, I just want to remind everyone that if you visit my website, bornvegan.org, you can find more of my work and sign up for my email list to get notified every time I release a new episode. Plus, all the links to my social media pages and YouTube channel are there if you'd like to engage with me more frequently. All right. Welcome, Casey. Thank you so much for coming on today. For having me. Well, I'm, I'm excited to get into this conversation and talk a little bit about, you know, how we are applying science in uh, effective activism, animal advocacy field um, in a minute. But before we jump into that, I wanted to have you share a little bit about what your background in psychology, psychiatry, that research area um, is. So if you could just tell us a little bit about that. Sure. Yeah. So I'm a, um, a clinical research psychologist um, I'm a clinical psychologist by, by training, a professor at Boston University School of Medicine, and I do research into violence, uh, trauma, and violence prevention. So um, I'm kind of, um, I, most of my work has been on understanding how trauma contributes to violent behavior. And more recently, I've spent most of my time focused on developing a program or, or a, a couple of different programs. They're called the Strength at Home programs. These are programs that, that work to prevent and end intimate partner violence, domestic violence, 
So I've developed these programs over the course of years. I've done a number of clinical trials funded through the CDC, NIMH, you know, Department of Defense. And more recently, I, we've you know, finished our clinical trials and shown the programs are effective. So I've been kind of um, implementing the programs across the country at veterans hospitals with civilians and on military bases, what have you. So that's been my, my big area of focus is violence prevention and evaluating and implementing programs. So you also wrote a book a couple of years back about motivational methods for vegan advocacy and uh, animal advocacy. What led you to write that book and uh, how does that connect with your work in, in these other fields? Yeah. So um, at that time, um, I was becoming a more ac- active advocate you know, vegan advocate. Um, and I was seeing a lot of pseudoscience out there in, in the animal advocacy world. I was seeing books written by non-scientists, you know, like uh, Nick Cooney wrote a couple of books about um, applying kind of psychology to advocacy and kind of reviewing research. And I thought it was in a really kind of um, biased kind of way and wasn't really portraying the science very accurately and and focusing more on kind of sales salesmanship techniques to sell veganism that I didn't think was really you know what where, what our focus should be so um, whereas a lot of that work was focusing more on social psychology and treating like veganism like you know like you would sell a car you know like what are the effective ways to sell you know, a car that, you know, didn't really seem to apply as well to veganism. So I wanted to talk about, um, I wanted to review some of the, the main theories for behavior change in clinical psychology, what we know about what contributes to actual change in behavior, talk and write a little bit about that research and apply it to animal advocacy. Um, because as I saw it, there were some, there are some major literatures in the psychology field that still to this day haven't really been researched in animal advocacy, haven't been applied um, and haven't really been considered. And I think that was largely because there were folks out there who were trying to push, you know, reduce sectarianism and incrementalism because it kind of fit their, I guess, financial model, you know, for their nonprofits they were running or associated with. So at the time I just felt like there was really kind of a mischaracterization of, of various psychology literatures that was being done by, you know, non-scientists and kind of trying to, trying to discuss um, approaches to advocacy that really rejected animal rights, you know, and, and we're focused more on the idea of, you know, don't ask too much of people and, mm-hmm. and trying to suggest that the science suggested that these were effective methods when, um, when really the, the truth was the opposite of that. So I kind of felt, I never really planned on writing a book <laughs> about animal advocacy. It was never, never, you know, something I had ever thought about. But when I was seeing all of these kind of non-scientists come out and trying to really push like a, an approach to advocacy that I felt was ultimately harmful to animals, then I, I just felt like I, I had to write something. And originally it was just going to be like a pamphlet, you know, I was going to create something for free, put it on our website. But then I just, 
I kept writing a little bit more, a little bit more, and then it just became just barely long enough to, to make it a book. So that's kind of how that happened. Well, it's a great book. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, so you say pseudoscientific then, just for people, like, especially right now, terms like pro-science, pseudoscientific are getting thrown around a lot. How would you define, when you say pseudoscience, what do you really mean by that? Um, what I mean by that is clearly using kind of attempting to use science um, in order to promote, you know, a specific agenda, um, where, whereas the science is really um, not real science, right? Where there, where there aren't real hypotheses um, that they're testing. They don't really define their constructs and they interpret their results in some cases opposite of what the results actually show. Um, and clearly by, you know, biasing results and their interpretations in order to try to promote whatever it is they're trying to promote. Um, okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. So there's, there's this whole field related to effective activism called effective altruism. And that seems to be pretty popular right now among a lot of philosophers, nonprofits, organizations. And I just wanted to read this definition for people who may not know, um, but from the website, like effectivealtruism.com, they said, effective altruism is about answering one simple question. How can we use our resources to help others the most? We use evidence and careful analysis to find the very best causes to work on. So like, as I understand it, it's this idea of taking data and evidence, science, and using it to determine how to do the most good in the world. So what are your thoughts on that application of like science in general? And, and what do you think about that idea? Yeah, well, I mean, I, so talking specifically about how this relates to animal mm -hmm. you know, altruism in particular, on the face of it, that's a great idea, right? <laughs> and that, that's what I do. I mean, I when in choosing the kind of work I want to do, I emphasize. I think about you know how can I have the biggest impact? You know what is what is needed in the field? How can we make the world a better place? You know my work. You know how can I end violence? You mm -hmm. know to the greatest extent possible. So those are all things that we you know as academics as scientists should be thinking about. Um, we don't you know well. <laughs> I say we, but at least I don't want my work to just be a kind of academic exercise where it's not actually doing anything, useful, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. So on the face of it, I think that's a great idea, but I think um, at least in the animal advocacy world, and I'm guessing probably in the larger, you know, effective altruism world, um, well, first of all, it's, a lot of this work seems to be done by non-scientists. You know, where kind of every, everybody thinks, you know, can label themselves as an effective altruist and they kind of just do slap some study together and <laughs> throw it out there on the Internet, you know, mm -hmm. and I think that's a real, a real problem. Um, but also my, my bigger problem with it is that it's kind of very utilitarian in its approach. And oftentimes all the work that I've seen and all the groups that I've seen that talk about effective altruism are about kind of trading lives, you know, like, um, if I encourage people to eat fish instead of cows, it will reduce suffering, you know, such and, you know, mm -hmm. such and such percent and all that kind of stuff. So all the work that I've seen is not couched within, in a kind of a rights framework, a social justice framework, 
um, and it comes to me, it comes across as very elitist, right? Where it's just like trading off lives as if those cows or those fish don't really matter. It's just mm -hmm. a matter of like reducing overall suffering, right? Um, so from that, there's that same kind of standpoint, you could justify, you know, animal testing and all kinds of really harmful things, as long as it brings about the most good to the most people, right? So, mm -hmm. so that's kind of a fundamental problem I have with it, that I think any kind of research that we do to try to determine, you know, how we can improve the human condition needs to value every life and not treat, not trade, you know, talk about trading lives as if these lives don't matter. That's a great point. I mean, and that's, that's definitely like one of the things that I talk about on this podcast, because my view is that like science is a tool, but it like we humans all have our biases that can show up in the science. It all science is coming through a human lens. Right. And so it all has biases that we have to be aware of. And we're, when we design a study or design scientific analyses, certain biases are built into it. Right. So what you're saying is that a lot of like this effective altruism, maybe, maybe a way to put it would be, it has a bias that reducing suffering is mm -hmm. our ultimate goal versus like valuing individual rights mm -hmm. and autonomy. Right. And I, and I think what, what the danger of that is that it can promote, um, well, at least in the case of animal advocacy research, it can promote speciesism mm -hmm. and promote the idea that, um, some animals' lives may be more important than other animals' lives, right? Um, and, and I think, you know, as somebody who does research in an area of violence and justice, you know, domestic violence, intimate partner violence, I would never, I would never do that, right? I, I, I would never um, design a study to look at, you know, just should we encourage people to just reduce their domestic violence instead of ending it? Or does that, you know, does, you know, or evaluating, you know, abuseless Mondays or something, you know, where, and any kind of like reduction, you know, I wouldn't want to reinforce any kind of suggestion that it's okay to just be, you know, to examine just simple reductions in unjust and violent behavior, rather than looking at it through a framework that, you know, no violence is okay or acceptable. So what do you think um, better, you know, endpoints when we're designing studies or looking at data on effective animal activism or prevention of violence in humans? What do you think are the better endpoints, things we should be measuring and quantifying instead of, say, reducing suffering? Mm -hmm. um, well, it, that, that's a good question. And, and I think in terms of animal advocacy, I'll just say for myself, and I, I don't know what, you know, everybody should be doing, but for mm -hmm. myself, I've always been most interested in uh, what, um, what contributes to folks going vegan, you know, what promotes the greatest amount of uh, degree of change to veganism, um, because to me, that's connected with speciesism. And, and when I'm talking about veganism, I don't just mean the diet, but, mm -hmm. you know, our, you know, our overall philosophy of not wanting to do harm, you know, or use any other living being. Um, so to me, that's what's most impactful. You know, when folks go vegan, they're vegan the rest of their lives. Um, that is, I think, okay, that's very impactful, right? Or all, all the harm we can do over the course of our lives that we eliminate rather than, you know, temporary changes in diet that people go back and forth on or reductions that people go back, back and forth on. Um, so to me, that that's the question I've always been most interested in. Well, like what what actually promotes um, veganism? I'm mm -hmm. sure there's other you know 
we thought about it more and tried to design something more, there's probably other endpoints. Um, you know, reductions in speciesism, you know, as well, but I think that's also connected to veganism. So, right. Um, yeah, I think those are, and those are also kind of quantifiable kind of end goals that you can more easily study than some of the other outcomes. Mm-hmm. That's one of the things that I've always had an issue with in the conversation of reducing suffering is how do you quantify that? How do you determine whether, uh, you know, a monkey in a lab all of their life is suffering more than a chicken who's, you know, in a, in a farm, you know, in a cage for three weeks versus a cow that lives their life in a pasture until their certain age. And then they're, you know, sexually exploited for dairy the rest of their life. Like, how do you look at those and say, this animal is suffering more than this animal. Like, you know, I just, I've always felt like that's not objectively quantifiable and that's like inherently biasing a lot of stuff. Yeah, I agree. It kind of goes back to promoting speciesism and kind of, again, like to me, there's kind of an an elitist tinge to all of this that just kind of bothers me where people are kind of talking, you know, making suggestions for doing harm to one and one kind of animal versus another uh, kind of playing God, you know, determining mm-hmm. like, you know, what is um, more harmful, less harmful when others lives are, you're talking about other people's other, you know, yeah, other, others lives in general. Yeah, absolutely. So this question is going to be a little bit more um, maybe broad or philosophical, but when we're talking about animal advocacy, speciesism, other, you know, human rights issues, do you think there is always, like, is science and evidence always the best way to think about justice movements? Are there any aspects of social change that that you think maybe don't fit or aren't quantifiable or don't fit into, like, a scientific framework? Honestly, I... I don't think science should have a big, a huge role in social justice <laughs> movements, honestly. Um, you know, I, last thing I want is a bunch of academics like leading the, the animal movement. I, I don't think that would be very impactful. Certainly like knowing my academic colleagues, the movement would be, you know, dead in a, in a moment, you know, uh-huh. <laughs> but I, I think there's a place for it, but I don't think science should be guiding anything. Right. I, I think, um, and I think that's actually another kind of problem with, with a lot of what I you know, have seen in this kind of effective you know, altruism in the animal movement is that folks are out there trying to kind of push this kind of pseudoscience to guide what we should be doing, right? Where they kind of haphazardly throwing together like a series of sales techniques and evaluating them in order to try to guide what people do. And I think that's really the opposite of what we should be doing. You know, we, and, and we know this like in the social sciences that you can't, that for, if, for example, if you're developing an intervention, like, you know, for my own, my own work to develop, you know, domestic violence prevention strategies, um, you start with a theory, you know, you start with a model for change, you know, and why you think, um, how you think change happens and how you will help bring about change. So you start with the theory and the model of change, and then you evaluate it through research or you evaluate mm-hmm. tenets of, of those theories. So really the theory, the model for change should come first, and then you can evaluate parts of it. Um, but it shouldn't be, we're just like throwing out a series of you know, techniques and kind of seeing what works and saying, and then telling all activists, like, this is what you should all be doing. 
Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. And that's, you don't hear a lot about the theories of change. Mm-hmm. I just hear a lot. I hear so many, like the evidence says this, this thing works, this thing doesn't work. Don't do this, say this, do this. You're harming mm-hmm. the movement. It's yeah. like, it's true. And, and the truth of it is the evidence says none of those things. You know, a- anybody who says the evidence says this or the evidence says that is misinformed because there really isn't good evidence on any of this stuff. Right. Uh, and through all the years, this kind of movement has been happening with like animal charity evaluators and faunalytics and all these people. Like, I, I don't know, like maybe, maybe I'm missing something, but I haven't seen anything published in any kind of peer reviewed paper or, you know, journal telling us like anything about what works and what doesn't you know, more. It's like, we have a lot of people, you know, saying that things are based on what works and this is effective or that's effective. But I think that's a misuse of the language of effectiveness because I don't think there really is that evidence. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's, that, and that, and that was partly why I wrote the book too, because there's a lot of people saying like, this is what, you know, I want to do what works. I want to do what's impactful. But the truth is that, that we don't really know, like the, certainly not from science. Um, mm-hmm. We haven't done the research to really tell us. So all these gr- organizations have been around all this time and funding all this research. I don't really know what it, what it's led to. You know, <laughs> I mean, I I'll t- I can tell you, like I've actually been a part of uh, grant submissions to some of these organizations that were really good, like really strong grants. Uh-huh. That, um, that I've had people like on the inside of, you know, for example. Um, um, animal charities evaluators who said, this is a really strong, this is by far the strongest grant that we got, right? Mm-hmm. But it didn't get funded, right? So some of these kind of big picture kind of questions that we could be asking, like, what should our approach be? Should we be promoting animal rights or should we be promoting reducitarianism? You know, just asking people to do their best and reduce their use of animals. These really big picture questions never get evaluated. Like there's a place for research there where we could, you know, start to look at some of these big issues. What what should we be doing in our advocacy? Mm-hmm. But there doesn't seem to be any interest in really, like, really trying to figure out what what really works. That's interesting. That's yeah. It's sad. It's sad that this is the state yeah. things are in. Um, it is. Yeah. And I used I used to be more frustrated about it. That's why I wrote my <laughs> book and I talked about it to anybody I could. And then and then I guess I just. And honestly, like, I don't hear much about it anymore. So at the time I felt like the, this movement in the, in the animal advocacy world was really dangerous. You know, mm-hmm. I thought like, people were really going to believe this stuff, but it, I don't, I don't know. It, it seems like maybe it's, it's lost a little bit of steam. I feel like there've been some big shifts in the movement in general with stuff like that and what, where, where uh, differences of opinions have fallen are like on, you yeah. know, we've got lab grown meat now and these other Mm-hmm. related, I think, to effective altruism, but um, that have shifted the conversation more to promoting biotechnology products, maybe rather than reducitarianism as much. That's just kind of my perception. Yeah, I think a lot of the guys, they found out you can make money in lab-grown meat. So like a lot of these guys who are promoting that research have literally disappeared off the face of the <laughs> earth. And now they're running these companies for, for lab-grown meat and, mm-hmm. and making, a, making a fortune. Um, yeah, (laughs) unfortunately, you know, there's a segment of, of the movement that is, um, their primary concern, I think is financial, right? Um, so I think that's where a lot of this research was going, you know, was to try to bring in contributions to their nonprofits. It was to try to, 
kind of validate the approach of their nonprofits to advocacy. And now, and now they're kind of going to, you know, the lab girl meet or wherever the next big thing is. Yeah. Um, so and I'm not saying like all this is bad and all that's necessarily terrible, but, um, cause we, again, we don't really know what works and what, what ultimately is going to bring the change that we need. But I do think when, when your motive is financial, then, um, you're probably not necessarily going to do what's in the best interest of, of the animals. Yeah. So that was part of my next question was going to be, do you think it's possible with veganism, animal rights, or any other social justice movement to know in the midst of your movement, like when you haven't achieved your goals, what is actually going to work? Like, is there any science that can tell us how the future is going to play out? <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm, I'm not sure myself, right? There's so many variables, right? And my own view of my own hopefulness about the movement has changed over time, you know, just because our society has changed. You know, when I, when I started, um, you know, vegan publishers, like our, our publishing company or vegan publishing company five years ago, I would get like 10, 10 to 20 emails a day from non-vegans asking for help in going vegan, just because they saw one of our memes or our posts and things like that like the impact you could have on social media was incredible back then. Mm -hmm. And I was very hopeful, you know, we'd have posts that would, you know, go viral. Millions of people would see it, you know, in a day. And um, now like that doesn't happen at all. You know, I can't remember the last time some a non-vegan emailed me because of, or messaged me because of something they saw on Facebook, you wow. know, because the algorithms have all changed um, things. We're not able to have the impact that we used to have in, you know, the non-vegan world. So it, so, you know, it's, it's hard to know how much of an impact we're really having in, in what we're doing, you know, so it's, so things change and it's hard to know like what's most impactful or what's ultimately going to bring the change that we need. And I could see why people, why people get to the point where they're like, we're too far gone, you know, and we have to rely on capitalist solutions to get us out of this because nobody's, you know, we're not able to reach the people we used to reach. Right. Mm -hmm. So I can see why, why one would think, you know, maybe lab grown meat is the way we get out of this thing, you know, because, um, you know, people aren't going to decide to go vegan. So they'll, just like with like Tesla and electric cars, right, where like it has to be like economically viable and people start buying, you know, Teslas because not out of, you know, a sense of, you know, activism, but because it's a great car and it's like more affordable and they, mm -hmm. they, save, less, you know, they save on gas. It's almost like, you know, you can, I can see why, you know, folks would think like we need to get kind of a cheaper version of you know the the farm raised animals you know lab, lab meat you know if people can get that for you know cheaper and you know and then we'll people stop we'll stop killing as many animals and then ultimately people won't feel like they need animals and then maybe speciesism will eventually decline as a result like like who knows right but <laughs> i can see you know how you can get to that point just because um you know, a lot of the things that used to feel impactful don't feel quite as impactful anymore. Mm -hmm. That's really fascinating that you've noticed such a difference on social media. That's... Yeah, it's, it's sad. It, it, it is um, that I, I used to, I mean, I, I, I um, to me, like ending violence um, is, you know, my whole career is focused on ending violence. So when I went vegan and I got more into advocacy, to me, it was amazing. 
right? To, to feel like I help, I was helping people go vegan, knowing that you're preventing all this violence, you know, to me, like, um, it, it felt the same as my day job ending domestic violence, you know, just mm-hmm. knowing that I felt like I was like doubling the impact I was having because in both like my day job and my kind of night job, I was, um, reducing violence, ending violence in different ways. Um, but it, it, it doesn't, it doesn't honestly feel the same, uh, now. And it, it's sad and it's really too bad. And I think it's, yeah, it's because of social media algorithms and <laughs> keeping people in their, in their bubbles and not really allowing kind of information that goes against kind of mainstream, you know, ideas like to, to circulate. Yeah. It's really, it's really scary to me how much power social media has over the information that people receive Mm -hmm. and, and how few people seem to be bothered by large companies having that power to decide what gets to us and what we get to see. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's, I, I've been dumbfounded myself. Like did people not, are people not worried about the fact that people are getting in pages and groups are getting kind of deplatformed right and left and just kind of getting erased. Um, you know, I mean, talk about science, like you would think exchange of ideas and people with differing points of view are important to have, you know, kind of to understand, you know, like how to improve our general condition and how to keep people educated and informed. Um, but yeah, people don't seem as, as bothered as, as you and I about, about this. And I've seen it firsthand in, in terms of animal advocacy, that it's just really totally hindered, you know, our efforts to get the message out there, right? Um, there's just really over the years, just been this um, through Facebook algorithms where we're just kind of talking to those who we already agree with, right? Mm-hmm. And we're not we're not really reaching others um, who we disagree with anymore. And yeah, it's a big problem. Yeah, I mean, I I had some experience with this last year. I was putting on the Virtual Climate Diet Summit, which was just to talk about the connection between climate crisis and animal agriculture and diet. And we put up this website and everything was going great. And then, and our whole, a lot of our whole plan for getting it out there was to buy ads on Facebook to promote it. Mm -hmm. And Facebook blocked our website. And like the entire URL, just like it said, this went against our community standards. No one could access it. This was after we'd already sent it out to all the speakers. Everyone's like sharing this URL and they're like, oh, it's not working. Like it won't let me post it. Um, And it was because we used the word pandemic like somewhere on our website and they're really worried about misinformation, even though like nothing about what we were talking about actually had to do with anything related to the pandemic. And um, but because we had that like word on our website, they just like screened the whole website out and we had to like last minute buy a new URL, like pay someone to transfer the whole website over. And it like really set back. And to this day, like I checked it a couple of weeks ago, that URL is still blocked. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I mean, how much time do we spend trying to like figure out how to avoid being censored or being, um, blocked or having our algorithm hurt by using certain words or certain phrases. And it's, it's pretty sad, you know, like, you know, I didn't, I didn't become a researcher, get a PhD to like be figuring out like how to beat like a Facebook (laughs) algorithm. Like it shouldn't be, 
it, it shouldn't take up as much of my time as it really does, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> trying to get messages out there. So as like a researcher, you are in the academic world, but also, you know, actually applying your research. What do you think about this general idea of, you know, just listening to the experts, trust the scientists? Do you feel like people generally are listening to the wrong people, that they should listen to the scientists more? Because like earlier, you said a lot of people doing the research in, you know, animal advocacy, you feel like aren't real scientists and don't understand science or how to apply it. So what do you think about like listening to the experts? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I I think it's, um, well, first of all, like we have to keep in mind that there are always experts on each side of of any (laughs) scientific question. Right. So when people say, you know, trust the science and listen to the experts, usually that means like believe in like whatever like the dominant kind of narrative is and just believe what people are telling you right um and oftentimes what gets kind of sent out and the message that gets put across is filtered you know several times before it reaches your audience right so Mm -hmm. folks who watch like a soundbite like on the news really have no idea like what went into that research study that they're talking about right like how they measured things what they didn't include, what the comparison group was, and was it really like a, a valid comparison to really be able to tell whether, you know, whatever it is is working or not working? Uh, what didn't they include in the study? Uh, what are the limitations? Um, and how is it being interpreted by the researcher themselves, right? Like what pressures were they under to have a certain result? Um, people don't realize this, but, you know, as a scientist, I know. You can give you can give the same data set to like 10 different researchers and they're going to come out with 10 different sets of findings that might might totally differ with each other. And in fact, there there was a study that actually did this where they gave the same data set to these different researchers and asked them um, to like look at the same question. And they they all came up with like different answers to that. Wow. People people have no idea. They think like science is just something like you put something in a test tube, you shake it up and then you have their answer and that's it. Right. Um, but that's not the way it is at all. It's it's a human process throughout the whole thing. What you choose to study, what you don't, how you measure it, how you evaluate it, how you do the data analysis, right? So you'll have the researcher who has their own set of biases, and they'll they'll interpret it. And then like then if you're getting it from the news or you know or something, then they interpret it their own way, right? So it happens all the time where I I'll be familiar with the study because I'll have read the study, and then I see it come out like in the news and realize like how, like how it's being completely distorted and, and people just believe it. Right. Mm-hmm. And then they say, and usually I find it's the people who say like, trust the science, you know, I believe the science, usually they're non-scientists who say that because <laughs> they don't really realize that, that it's a lot more complicated than that. Right. And, um, and that the whole scientific endeavor involves, you know, questioning things and evaluating, you know, retesting, looking at different outcomes, different ways of looking at it. So it's, it's never as it's never as cut and dry as folks make it seem to be. Like this is the answer. This is what science says. So this is what I believe in. It's 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 never that simple. Yeah, absolutely. Great way of putting it. Totally agree. So I see that's what started this pod- podcast, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> I've. I mean, yeah. I've I've seen it. My undergrad degree was in my um, biochemistry, mm-hmm. and I grew up competing in science fairs which was a whole other experience on its own. Um, 
where I saw firsthand how certain projects were doing better than others, not because of how scientific they were, but because like basic research never did as well at the science fairs as like technological development or like Mm -hmm. something that could end up being marketable because the science fairs are sponsored by pharmaceutical companies, biotech companies, technology, like it's created under this paradigm of like, how can we profit off of science? So there was an inherent bias that took me a long time to notice it um, until it started to affect Mm -hmm. me and my projects. Um, But different, different story for another time, but um, yeah, it's, it's so much more complex. It is right. It is. And it's hard because, you know, you don't expect that everybody's, you know, going to have the knowledge to be able to read a scientific article article and be able to kind of criticize it, you know, or, or, or to evaluate, you know, whether something is effective or whether, you know, it's being reported accurately. So it, it does make it challenging, mm-hmm. but I, I think people should just be a little bit more kind of humble you know, when they're talking about science, you know, when they're interpreting it, don't um, put down others who may have a differing point of view, because chances are that there's scientists who agree with those other people you're putting down as well, right? Um, so I, I think people need to, need to just be a little bit less sure of themselves, you know, when they're talking about <laughs> science, and to be, to be aware of, um, you know, that there are different points of view and that um, these aren't kind of cut and dry, you know, black and black and white um, issues. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So if you were to tell animal advocates, vegan activists, um, what do you think the best way to apply the scientific method and data to advancing the vegan movement would be? What would you tell people? So I guess what I, I, me personally, like if I were to start a program of research um, and I had unlimited money, um, mm-hmm. probably I would start with looking, and as a psychologist, I'm biased. So I, I would start by looking at some of the big um, theories in psychology, right? Some of the, some of the, some of the uh, theories for changing behavior that we know are important across all kinds of populations, all kinds of problems, all kinds of problem behaviors. Um, Things like the importance of goal setting, um, uh, things like the importance of motivational interviewing. Uh, Motivational interviewing is a strategy used to motivate people to wanna change their behavior. And it's been shown to be incredibly impactful for getting people to do anything that we want them to do, right? You know, ending, you know, alcohol use, substance use problems, domestic violence, you know, the list goes on and on. You know, there are these kind of big theories and big kind of interventions for behavior change that we know are impactful. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's partly why I wrote my book, you know, because there are these, these models out there that I think really could inform the movement. It, at least they can inform your animal advocate who's going out there and engaging in advocacy and trying to help people change and uh, try to be inspirational and influential. There's a huge body of research and literature in, you know, the behavior change fields that I think could really inform that and be really helpful. Um, you could a- answer some basic questions, right? Like, should we be promoting reduced sectarianism? Should we be, pr- be promoting just incremental, like cutting down our use of animals, or should we pr- be promoting veganism, right? I mean, that's a big question that. I don't, I don't know if we can fully get the, you know, 
the you know answer to that you know completely without any caveats but um we could at least get some idea about you know those you know these kind of big picture kind of questions that get debated you know by among advocates all the time so that's probably where i would start like i'd start at the beginning because honestly like we are at the beginning if, if we're talking about research and advocacy i i haven't seen you know i've seen almost nothing you know in the field you know hand, there have been a handful of papers that i think um you know, have been, um, have been useful. Like Trent Grassian um, did publish uh, a paper looking at kind of differences between reduced promoting reduced sectarianism versus veganism. And it wasn't a, a randomized controlled trial or anything like that, but it did provide suggestive evidence suggesting we should be promoting veganism. There, have been, there has been some other work that's been done in the area of speciesism mm -hmm. that I think is useful to understand speciesism. So there, ha there has, there have been a handful of you know, peer-reviewed published papers that I've seen that I think are, are useful, but we're essentially at, at the beginning. If we really want to know, you know, how can research inform, you know, promoting change? And of course, you know, I'm a clinical psychologist and so it's, I can't really speak on sociology research and social psychology research in these other fields, but of course, you know, we're talking about social movements. Uh, I'm sure there's whole areas of research that haven't been applied there there as well that that could be examined. Great. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. And that's what I I just am very skeptical anytime anyone says the data says this because I'm like, do we really have that much data? Do we really have anything saying these things? No, we don't. No. Whenever anyone's saying that, yeah, they're they're misinformed or they're or they're lying. <laughs> All right. So final question I've been asking people is what does the phrase science is gray mean to you? Right. I feel like I just gave you like a five minute uh, answer to that one. <laughs> you might have so. <laughs> I, well, I just, I'll try to give you a shorter answer uh, this time. I, I, I think, again, I think it goes back to um, you have to be aware of the limitations of, of science, that um, it's a human process um, throughout the whole thing. You know, what you choose to study, um, how you look at it, how you measure it, how you evaluate it, how you interpret it, how um, your funder, you know, responds to it, um, how your reviewers respond to it. You know, there, there's, there's bias throughout the whole process and it's a human process. Um, that I think we just have to be, again, a little more humble when we're talking about science and be more open to um, the possibility that we don't, we don't know everything and that uh, we don't know all the answers and that there may be other things that we haven't thought about or, other, or haven't considered or that, or that we don't know. Excellent. Anything else you'd like to add? <laughs> uh, no, I mean, I think, I think we covered it pretty, pretty well. All right. And I'll make sure to link in the show notes um, your website and your book and all of that. So people can check that out. Thanks so much for listening today. And if you enjoyed this episode or are enjoying the podcast as a whole and want to support me and help get this information in front of more people, I would love it if you could share this episode and also leave a rating and review of the podcast in the iTunes or Spotify app or wherever else you are listening from.